you ready to study your Bibles this morning? Yeah, well, go ahead and turn with me to Romans 8. And as you get there, I want to sort of frame up our time together. Um, <clears throat> my assignment is to preach this word uh, in front of us. And uh, before I do that, it, uh, this time of year is always the best because of the transition, right? Like we live in Florida, so we don't have the uh, uh, pleasure of having our leaves go from green to yellow to red, but we have house decor, right? And in my house, we've, I've begun to swap out the fall decorations for the Christmas decorations. Now, if it were up to me, the, the Christmas, de- there would be no fall decor. The Christmas decor would go up in October. Uh, but I understand that this year I needed to exercise self-control. And so we got everything out the week of Thanksgiving. So think that that's good on me. But the music is playing, right? My wife puts peppermint oil in all the diffusers. Uh, we're watching all the Christmas movies. There's, there's nothing like this Christmas culture that sort of gets us ready for the season, the commercials, the sales, the gifts, the movies, the music, all of this, the food, the family, it it all gives us something to look forward to. This season of merriment and joy, this season of laughter and cheer, the season of food and family, but also it's a bit of a respite. Right? It's It's a bit of a respite from all the years, trials, and hardships. It's a, it's a welcomed distraction. Because if we're honest, we, and I've talked to enough of you to know that this is true, we're, we're tired. We're tired, exhausted. But not, not sleepy, weary. There is a weariness that the last few years have brought upon us. A lot of life has happened. Close your eyes for just a second. Yeah, we're getting better at this. Think about where you were last year, who you were with, where you lived, who occupied those rooms, who were your neighbors, where did you work? Think about all those details. Now think about where you are right now. Not next week, not last week, right now. How different is it? How tired are you? You could open your eyes. If we continue that trail of honesty, what has kept us going day after day after day, what what has kept us striving, getting up from our beds is hope. Hope for many things, hope in a lot of things. And hope, just so that we're working off a singular definition, is the expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. We're hopeful that our situations may change, hopeful that doctor's reports will read different, hopeful that someone will have a change of heart, hopeful that this too shall pass, hopeful that the season we're in will one day not be, hopeful for a different political landscape, hopeful that if we just keep grinding, just keep working, then maybe the big break will come. I mean, we all have different hopes 
different desires for certain things to happen, if we could just summarize it all down, boil it down to one singular word, what we're hoping for is change. We are groaning for it. Groaning, you know what that word means? It's wanting something so bad, there's an utterance. It's a noise birthed out of pressure. Think of creaking steps as you walk up them and you put your weight on one of the steps and the the wood kind of gives that that creak, that groan for relief of the tension. We groan out of need, out of longing, out of wanting so bad for change. And there we cling to hope. And something to get us by. I want to argue two things this morning. First, for what you groan for. Because weary people groan. Weary people groan. The first question I want to submit to you is what are you groaning for? And the second thing I want to argue is that you are not alone in your groaning. I want to highlight two other voices in this choir of groaning that you and I are in. I want to tag this time in this text, true hope for misplaced hope. True hope for misplaced hope. And Paul meets us in our weary, groaning state and delivers to us an encouraging word. May God help us hear it. If you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And then would you pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from the Lord. Romans 8. My bad. Starting in verse 18. And it reads, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes and what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is God's word. Join me in prayer. God, we come to your house as weary guests. We come tired and smelly from a lifetime of travel. We come aching and sore from a lifetime of baggage. Father, may we find your house, your word, and your table 
a balm for our weariness, a respite from our travels, and at your table may we taste and see that you are good. Father, would you gift me with clarity of speech and thought as the preacher, and would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors? In Christ Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Y'all gonna have to bear with me preaching from a, like a mic mic is, I ain't done that in a minute, so I'm gonna get comfortable. You'll have to forgive me, again, for the lack of creativity in delivering to you back-to-back Narnia illustrations, but that's just where I'm at right now. And C.S. Lewis's class, Steve, I gave a Narnia illustration last week. Okay. You weren't here. I missed you. Oh, okay, good. All right. In C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe, a little girl named Lucy finds herself in a very intense game of hide-and-seek. Uh, with her siblings. Searching desperately for a place to hide, she finds a quiet room uh, that is completely empty except for a majestic wardrobe that stands opposite to her. And as she hears the footsteps of her oldest sister come charging down the hallway, Lucy quickly jumps in the wardrobe and backpedals her way to the back of it beyond all the fur coats. Except this wardrobe has no backing. What is the soft and mothy smell of fur coats now becomes the prickliness and smell of pines. Lucy discovers the wardrobe is actually a doorway to a magical land that is covered in snow and is terribly cold. After searching for some time in this magical land, she meets this fawn by the name of Tumnus, And after a few back and forth questions about who he is and where she is, she learns that she is in Narnia. And as for the cold, Mr. Tumnus explains that there is an evil white witch who claims to be the queen of Narnia, and she has made it so. He says exactly, it is winter in Narnia, and has been ever so long, always winter, but never Christmas. Imagery aside... Can't you relate to that, fam? Can't you relate to the always winter but never Christmas? In all the years of your life, can't you feel the winter of this weary world? Can't you feel the winter of weariness on yourselves? All the year long, you and I have been burdened by a world that is not supposed to be. Between the personal struggles, family struggles, political turmoil, global catastrophe, wars and genocide, always winter but never Christmas. Between death, disease, divorce, financial hardships, let go from your job, health conditions, wayward children, lost siblings and stubborn parents, always winter but never Christmas. For those of us struggling with mental health for the first time or for the umpteenth time, cycles of depression, sleepless from nightmares, the pounding of your chest during anxiety spells, you have strived throughout all this world's issues and have come to the end longing for freedom and have yet to find it, always winter but never Christmas. Solomon in all his wisdom writes the proverb, hope deferred makes the heart sick. 
And I think we can resonate with this. Essentially, what Solomon is saying here is that expectations unmet, hopes and dreams unfulfilled creates in us a sickness. And that sickness is the weariness we all feel. It's important then for us to consider, to think deeply on where exactly is our hope? Where is it found? Is it in financial security? Is our hope in financial freedom, in increased wealth, with all our, with, with, would all our problems be no more if we just had more money? The great philosopher Christopher Wallace said, more money, more problems. Oh, y'all know it. Okay. Is it health? In your strength? Is it in what you can do? Can you just work your way into stability and peace? Some of you are are coming close to the full maturation of your bodies and your body doesn't function like it used to. It's harder to walk and harder to stand and harder to run. Some of you are battling real infirmities. There's a sickness plaguing your body. Some of you have no clue what's going on. You just know it don't feel right. Will health be the permanent relief? So the winter's cold. Will your effort, your might get you across the finish line? Mitch Album in his book, Tuesdays with Maury, writes, it's not contagious, you know. Death is as natural as life. It's part of the deal we made. In other words, hope in you dies with you. I could go on and on and on, family, but what is it for you? What have you placed your hope in as the solution to the winter? What have you placed your hope in that will surely bring you Christmas? Church, there is good news for us this morning. See, the church calendar is set in such a way that this time of year, beginning this week and for the next four weeks, we engage in a lovely tradition. For the church, historically, this time of year, we don't look first across the table to to family for comfort. We, We don't look first under the tree for joy. We don't look first at ourselves for reassurance and safety. This time of year has never been and will never be about all the things you and I mistakenly place our hope in. But instead, the church calendar points the believer to something else. The Advent season tells us to remember the first coming and look towards the second coming of Jesus. That's what Advent means. It's Latin for coming. It's the anticipation of the arrival of someone. We look back to Christ's first coming in the manger and look forward to his second coming on a white horse. Paul in this text encourages us to encourages us away from putting our hope in anything other than him. And so now the anticipation of a brighter day is not set to a day we can find on the calendar, but a day that's still to come. For today's struggle, today's circumstances, today's winter, we will look towards uh, tomorrow when spring will come. And Paul says, this is what we should want. This is what the pangs of our soul should groan for. I want to turn your attention to the text now. Look at verse 18. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul, Paul writes sufferings in the plural. Paul says there, there's different kinds of sufferings. What's, what's mine is not always yours and what's yours is not always mine. But in the end, we all feel suffering. We all feel life knocking us down on the mat. And our faith does not save us from suffering. This, this is a popular misconception, right? Coming to Jesus means all your problems go away. Some of you may be more generous than that. Coming to Jesus just means my big problems will go away. But this is not true. H.B. Charles says this, he says, God only had one child who lived on earth without sin. His name was Jesus. God has no children who live on earth without suffering, and that includes Jesus. The reality of living in this world is that the, it is inevitable for the human to experience suffering. That's the truth. Just as Christ has suffered here on earth, so will we. Jesus doesn't provide you a silver bullet to all your problems. Instead, he promises a day when problems will be no more. You got to see the beauty in here, church. Look at, look at the pivot. Paul says, sufferings are a present reality, but glory is coming. And the suffering we experience now is nothing compared to the glory we will experience later. No matter what we have gone through, we are going through and will go through. It is nothing compared. We, we have no measuring stick to compare to the glory that's coming. Think about this. The ocean is vast. The, specific, the Pacific Ocean, uh, specifically, is the greatest ocean on Earth. All of the Earth's continents can fit in its basin. And yet, we could measure a drop of water compared to its vastness. What Paul is saying here is, that's not enough. That's not enough. We don't have a measuring stick. We don't have a term. We don't have a big enough ruler. The numbers are infinite and that's still not enough to comprehend what's to come. You cannot compare what we will experience in glory to the sufferings we have, are, and will experience here on earth. I need you to understand, family, that's good news. From my view, this is, this is one of the most staggering sentences in all the scriptures. It's not fool's gold or a wives' tale. This is not imaginative, misguided narrative. No, Revelation says that on that day, the universe will be transformed. Philippians says that on that day, our bodies will be transformed to be like Christ's glorified body. I want to look at those two things. Think how intricate, how delicate. How gorgeous the universe is. Like, like, what's the stat? Some of you might correct me if I'm wrong, but you know what I'm saying. It's like one degree closer to the sun, we burn. One degree further, we freeze. Look how delicate. How intricate. Now, you've seen the James Webb photos, right? Every time new photos surface, it breaks the internet. We cannot believe just how magnificent the universe is. Paul says, that's nothing to what it will be. Think about our bodies. How marvelous our bodies are. Think about your nervous systems, your digestive systems, your respiratory system. Think about the, the self-healing, how self-sufficient our bodies are. Think about childbearing. 
Paul says that's nothing to what it will be. Or you asleep with me. We cannot compare. Family, this is a promise to you from the God who loves you that all that you have, are, and will experience on this earth does not compare to the day of glory coming to you. This is our hope. This is our hope for the future that the best is yet to come. But what we've done is we've heard this promise and behaved as if we've believed something else. I really like my money. If you're Anthony, I really like my healthy physique. (laughs) I feel really strongly about these positions. So I'll functionally live as though my hope and my suffering is for a better day here on earth and not a better day on a coming day of glory I cannot see. C.S. Lewis talks about our dilemma in a sermon titled The Weight of Glory. I'm going to paraphrase, but he says, someday, God willing, we will get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience. When all the suns and nebula have passed away, each one of you will still be alive. When we consider all that God promises us on that day of glory, we find that today we are just half-hearted creatures hoping in and fooling around with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are like an ignorant child who keeps making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. Family, what C.S. Lewis is arguing here is that belief, our belief, hope, trust, and what the scriptures say will change our lives completely. We need to have our gaze lifted from the dirt to the heavens, our gaze positioned towards Christ as our hope for the immeasurable riches of grace instead of focusing primarily on the measurable, tangible, random Tuesday where maybe, probably, wishfully, only a fraction of your suffering has ceased. You're still not with me. Paul says, I have considered this. I have thought this through. I have lived this. Nothing compares. Paul is saying here, my eyes will not be fixed on the situations and circumstances around me. I I will not have my hope in a better ship after being shipwrecked thrice. I I will not have my hope in medicine because I was bit by a poisonous snake. I, I will not have my hope in a better political system because the persecution I'm facing for preaching the word. I will not have my hope in my own ability to be robbed or to not be robbed for the little I already have. I won't have my hope in a person because people have stoned me, whipped me, and beat me. Paul is not speaking poetically, but factually. Nothing I have gone through, nothing I am going through, nothing I will go through compares to the glory that is to come, and that is where I'll fix my face. Paul then goes on in this text to deliver to us a more fleshed out hope. And he says that this hope is so great, so sure, that believers groan for it. The earth groans for it. And the Holy Spirit groans for it also. Let's allow Paul to make his case. Look at verse 19. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom from the glory of the children of God. When Paul says creation, he means all created things outside of humanity. And Paul poetically personifies creation as someone leaning forward, searching, waiting with great expectation for a day of glory coming. Paul says the whole of creation is eagerly awaiting the finished work of Jesus. Creation is awaiting its own change. It's awaiting to be consumed by the completed redemptive work of God. Family, let, let, let this show us that the answer to any suffering we may have is not found anywhere on this world or in the universe. The universe does not speak to you. The stars and the planets do not align themselves for your interpretation of the day's mysteries. No, no, no. Paul argues the universe expands and the stars glitter and the planets turn and the earth, plants, animals, oceans, clouds exist groaning with anticipation. It is hoping. That's not amazing to you. I don't know what is. Paul explains why in verse 20. Because of it being subjected to futility. It all waits. It all hopes with groaning, anticipation of the glory of God on that day, on that great day, because all of creation isn't as it should be. This is, this is commentary on Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19. Paul says, Advent doesn't begin in November. Advent doesn't begin in a manger. It begins, it began in the garden. When mankind fell through Adam, when Adam sinned, all of creation became broken. Theologians call this a cosmic fracture. Adam sinned, stars began to die. Natural disasters began to take shape and devastate. The world breaks and get worse and worse and worse. But Paul says in verse 21, there's a day coming. There's a, there's a coming liberty for creation. Creation itself will be set free from the bondage of corruption and receive ultimate freedom in the glory of the children of God. You asleep family, the whole of creation groans, but it's not just groaning out of death, but of coming life. Just as a mother is in her birthing bed, she groans, but she does not groan in pain for death, but groaning awaiting coming life. The earth is groaning. The stars are groaning. The universe is growing in pain, in trouble, in sorrow, but it's not for death. It is for life. A new heaven and a new earth is on its way. The whole of creation knows today is not as it should be. The best is yet to come. Paul shifts his attention now to us Christians. And what we've placed our hope in, creation was, was just a segue. It was just an illustration. This, this is Paul's main concern here in this portion of the letter. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation... But we ourselves, 
who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons and the redemption of our bodies. Paul says it's not just creation groaning, but we are too. For creation is experiencing the pains of nature. The reefs are dying. The caps are melting. The earthquakes, the hurricanes, the volcanoes, the tsunamis. If creation feels the sufferings of this present age, surely you do too. Basically, Paul is saying here, life will make you cry. Life is painful. It will make you weep. It will bring you to your knees. It'll put some deep pain on you. Because right there, there's something else in this verse we got to mention. This word we. When he says we are groaning too. That we is a very specific kind of we. It's an exclusive we. He says those of us who have the first fruits of the spirit. We aren't just in pain like creation. See, whether you got Jesus or not, you're going to feel life sting. But we, the ones who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan in hope like creation too. That's what separates us. Paul is saying here, what Paul is saying here is that it's not just we've, this is only for those who have received that initial investment. That down payment for something that is to come. For those of us uh, who had that, we have access to a hope so deep it groans with anticipation in the midst of the sorrows of this world. Oh, you're not listening to me. Paul is saying we grieve and we groan. We cry and we groan. We feel pain and confusion and uncertainty and we groan. We groan because what's inside of us reminds us that there is better coming for us still. See, in Genesis, I'm going to try to help you out. In Genesis, when Abraham's servant was sent to find a bride for Isaac, he met Rebekah. And he gave silver, gold, garments, and presents to Laban. That was Rebekah's brother. And he gave these presents, he gave these gifts as a sign to Laban for what would come to Rebekah if she married. He, he, he gave those gifts saying, oh, but when she gets married, there's more of that for her. This is what God has done with us with the Holy Spirit. When you first came to saving faith, God had already put a piece of himself, God the Holy Ghost, in you as a promise of what's to come for you on your day of glory. That indescribable peace you felt when you first experienced the forgiveness of your sins, past, present, and future. The, the power of God that calms your heart when, the, when you go through the circumstances you go through. The joy that floods your soul. Paul reminds you, that's to remind you of what's to come when your husband comes to take you home. The Christian groans in hope because the spirit in us is a promise that the best is yet to come. Paul says we in the faith, we groan different. We join the groanings of creation as we anticipate the remedy of all things in the coming glory. When Jesus transforms the heavens and the earth to a new heaven and new earth and transforms our mortal bodies into the one like his glorious body. 
And as much as you should be reminding yourself of the gospel of your salvation, you should also be reminding yourself of the gospel of your glorification. In other words, don't preach part of the gospel to yourself. Preach that thing in its fullness. Paul says, verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Mm. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Oh, this hope saved us. It saved us because it reminds us in Christ's first coming. He began a good work on the cross where he died as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So when he died on that cross, sin's grip on us was loose and Christ's hands is now firmly on us forever. But his work didn't end there. He continued that work in his death. Well, you're not excited about the gospel. I don't know what's going to get you going this day. <laughs> he continued that work in his death, going down into the pit, bound the works of Satan so that he could never steal the church away. But that wasn't all he did. He rose up bodily, not in spirit. His full body rose up fully alive, so that death could not master us either. But he still wasn't done. He sent the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead to raise us up when he comes back. But he's still not done. He's coming back as a king and a judge. And he will judge the world and bring us, his children, up with him. Family, that right there, that hope we have in his return, that's the only relief from the sorrow. That's the only relief from our circumstances and hard seasons, the whole gospel. Yes, God has saved me from my sin, but he's also saving me from this life and raising me up to glory with him. Oh God, you are so good to us. The question then is how? How can we hope for what we do not see? How can we wait for it with patience? Now you might be thinking, how, how can I wait while I drown? It's okay to feel this way. You can't stay there. But it's okay to feel this way. There is an answer. There is. But let's be real. There are times when we cannot pray. When the anxiety is too thick, when the wounds are too deep, when the fear is overtaking, when you lie in a hospital plugged into machines and tubes, when you're so devastated that words can't be uttered, there is an answer. There is relief in our weaknesses. Paul tells us there's another voice groaning too. Look at 26. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we are, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Family, those of you who have the first fruits of the spirit, you have an advocate interceding speaking for you when words cannot be expressed 
when the gravity of the sufferings of this world cripple us to such a degree that we cannot speak, the ghost groans in your place. How beautiful is this? How marvelous. How wonderful the wealth we've inherited. When you are too weak, the spirit articulates. When you are too doubtful to groan, the ghost gives you hope. This is real help. I can sit at your table and grieve with you. I can sit at your sofa and give you counsel, and I would love to do that. But it is the Spirit of God in you that does what I nor you can do on our own. It is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit to sustain you in the midst of tribulation. He stands with you in the moments of darkness and pain. He helps you preserve so that no suffering can overtake you. This is the love of God over you. With Christ as your advocate, you are delivered from sin's punishment. But with the, sin, with the Spirit as your advocate as well, no trial be too great, no suffering too large, no valley too low. Because now, when you don't know what to pray, he prays for you. When you need help, you have a helper. And he will take you all the way to that day, that day of glory, when Jesus comes to take us home, that day when death is defeated and sin has lost its fatal sting, when problems are no problem, when trials are no trouble at all, that day when Christmas comes and winter is no more, that day we remember when we join together and sing, oh, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit and washed in his blood. Stand with me and worship. Mm -hmm.